Indeed, what wonderful words to stir our hearts. It is not I, but is Christ in us. Um, I hope you paid attention to those words. There is no more for heaven now to give. There is nothing more that God the Father can give for us, can give to us than Christ, our Redeemer. And so we stand together united tonight in that truth that we have been a people ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that is good news for us, that our debt has been paid. As we consider tonight Hosea redeeming Gomer, uh, restoring his wayward wife to him in a surprising reunion, these words give us comfort that heaven will spend all of its resources, its most precious gift, to redeem a wayward people. And we are that people. And so I would invite you this evening to turn with me to Hosea chapter 3. Hosea chapter 3. It was wonderful getting to worship this week at at D3, being in a a room with hundreds of teenagers raising their voices in praise to God. It's a remarkable thing and uh, a joyful thing. And uh, uh, it's good to come back to the church, the family, and worship together with you today as well. And so... Uh, We ought to be people of worship, and and these songs, these wonderful lyrics can help us, can facilitate that type of worship as our heart cries out to God, yet not I, but through Christ in me. Hosea chapter 3, we'll be reading the entirety of this short chapter tonight, verses 1 through 5, and so I would ask that if you are able this evening that you stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Hosea chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, it says, Then the Lord said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. So I bought her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and one and one half homers of barley. And I said, you shall stay with me many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man so too will I be toward you. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, without ephod or teraphim. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king. They shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. You may be seated. And let's once again turn in prayer to the Lord this evening. Oh God, we are grateful that we are not required to come to you on our own merit. Because were we required to do that, we would have nothing, nothing at all to bring. Yet our hope, our rejoicing is that it is not I, but Christ in me is the redemption that Jesus himself has purchased by his blood, that has paid our debt. And so, Lord, we pray tonight that as your people, as your blood-bought and redeemed people, that you would give us understanding of your word, that you would open our eyes, that you would help us to see the beauty of your great plan of redemption, that you would help us to see the beauty of a man's sacrificial love for his wife. 
and that you would help us as your people to seek you as our king, as our true and good bridegroom. Help us, Lord, to be faithful because our wayward hearts seek after other things. We lust after worldly things. We seek to be friends with the world and so make ourselves your enemies. Forgive us, Lord, and set our hearts aright so that we may pursue you with single-minded devotion as you have pursued us and have poured your love on us. Give us understanding of the text, Lord. Keep my lips from stumbling, and may you be glorified in all that we do tonight. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, earlier this year, I had the great privilege of participating in an incredibly special wedding. Now, every wedding is special in its own right. Every wedding is a remarkable event because a wedding is a joyful parable of the gospel. It's a mysterious union in which two individuals come together through the work of the Spirit and through the ascent of the local church to join together and become an entirely new entity. There is real magic in a wedding. But this wedding that I got to participate in earlier this year was particularly special because it wasn't the bride or the groom's first wedding. It was their second However, these two people had not been married to other people and then divorced and marrying each other. They had been married to each other and had been divorced and were now coming together a second time to be re-wed. Sin had shipwrecked their marriage. Adultery, infidelity, broken promises, broken trust, it was all there. It dissolved that sacred union. But a while back, God began doing something miraculous in their lives. He began taking these two people that had betrayed one another, that had committed treason against one another, and he began bringing them back together. With the help of a strong local church, with the help of his word, he began restoring my two friends back to one another. And after what was a long and admittedly hard road, they once again stood before God and the church and made new vows to one another. They pledged themselves to one another. And this wedding was in some ways even more beautiful than the first because it didn't contain any of the naivete of young passion. They had already seen the worst that each other had to offer. And they embraced it and said, yes, I will commit myself to you despite the past betrayals. They pledged their love to one another regardless of what they knew to be true of one another. And by God's grace, they'll continue on in that way. But in this short chapter here, we see a similar story unfold. And as we do, we see the glorious reality of a God who desperately loves his people fully knowing who they are, fully knowing how fickle their hearts are. Hosea is the one that's instructed here to go and to love his wife once more. But as we read through this passage, we find that God does not ask of his prophet something that he is himself unwilling to do. 
For our God likewise intends to demonstrate his great love by pledging himself to an adulterous and undeserving people. To purchase a bride, even at great cost to himself. And so tonight I want us to look at four things in these five verses. First, we will see Hosea and the Lord sincerely loving an adulteress. And then we will see them settling a debt. Afterward, the wife, Gomer, and the people will suffer in exile before they finally turn to seek the king. When we read here this first verse, we ought to be shocked at what God asked Hosea to do. It is, in fact, shocking. It's, it's enough that God would ask Hosea to marry Gomer in the first place. We saw in chapter 1 where he said, I want you to go and marry a promiscuous woman. And that was surprising. That was surprising enough. But here he says, I want you to go back to this woman after she has betrayed you. In fact, the, the verb tense here seems to indicate that she is in the midst of committing adulteries even now. As we speak, she is in the midst of betraying Hosea. He says, I want you to go and love again a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery. A faithless woman. And God tells Hosea, I want you to go and do this. Now, of course, we come together here and we sing about grace and forgiveness. And we talk about those things. And we may even talk about our own sins and how great they are. And how terrible they are and how sorry we are for our sins. But when someone has been wronged in the way that Hosea has been wronged here, we find it very difficult to find room for grace in that situation. This is in many ways the ultimate betrayal. When a man and a woman share in the intimacy of the marriage bed, knowing each other and being known, leaving no room for division either of the flesh or of the spirit, experiencing the one flesh union that Christ himself extols to us. When that occurs and then one spouse breaks that sacred union and bestows those most intimate blessings on a stranger, it's hard to imagine a greater betrayal. In fact, when someone we love experiences such a betrayal, our tendency is to curse the offender. To pour out our contempt on the oath breaker and to affirm the aggrieved party. I I know this to be true because I've been there and I've done that. When my friend was aggrieved, I've sat in his house and wanted to say, yes, I can't believe that this person would would do this to you. How dare they? We want to to prop up the aggrieved and, and drag down the one that has betrayed them. Yet that is not what God instructs Hosea to do. God doesn't here commiserate with his prophet, though they have both been wronged in this way. Instead, he tells Hosea to get up and go love her again. Go and love this woman. And this is utterly dumbfounding, I think, because we might even understand if God were to tell Hosea to go and marry Gomer again, if that was the instruction, we'd be like, okay, we can understand that. We can understand reinstituting a covenant with this woman, with protecting her and providing for her. Yes, that in a way is showing love and affection, but God doesn't say that. He doesn't say to go and marry her begrudgingly. He doesn't say to just go and take her as a wife again. No, he says to go and love her 
again. To withhold nothing from her. To pour out your affection on her. To sincerely love this woman. To be her husband in the fullest sense despite her betrayal. Not begrudgingly, but sincerely. And we see that God tells Hosea to do this because this is exactly what God himself intends to do for Israel. Though Israel has committed spiritual adultery against him. He tells us here that they have pursued other lovers. That they've took other gods to love. And he says they love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Now we may get to that part and you're scratching your head thinking, okay, wait a second, we're talking about adultery and all of a sudden he throws in confections here and we're a little confused about what's going on. But, but the reference to raisin cakes at the end of this verse, though it may seem a bit odd, it points to concrete evidence of the people's betrayal. You see, we read elsewhere in the scriptures about the use of raisin cakes and, and they're used typically in a romantic context. In Song of Solomon chapter 2, Verses 4 and 5, the woman there says, He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with cakes of raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am lovesick. Evidently, there was some sort of perceived aphrodisiac quality to raisin cakes or something that associated them with romance. So you can think about that the next time we have a potluck and somebody puts raisins in a dessert. Um, but the implication here in Hosea is that Israel had utilized these cakes in some sort of immoral pagan worship. We, we read about and understand that there were fertility cults aplenty in this day. And so there, there's some sort of lewd sexual practices going on. And these raisin cakes were likely something that was used during that false worship. The New Testament equivalent to this might be as we Read about the food sacrificed to idols, the food used in idolatrous worship. It wasn't that the cakes themselves were evil, though I might question people that put raisins in desserts, but um, it was the, the people's use of them in pagan worship. And so God points here to a concrete example of their rebellion against him with a reference here to raisin cakes. He says this is one way in which the people are showing their affection for other gods. We might think this is something minor. But the Lord says, no, this is adultery. They are seeking other gods, and this is the evidence. And so this is a very big deal indeed. As we read this, our temptation here may be to point to Hosea as the hero of this story and say, wow, that is really impressive that he would do this. I am blown away that Hosea would go and and marry and love this woman. This is This is impressive, and we should applaud Hosea for what he does. We might have that response, or we might look at Israel, and we might say, well, how dare they betray God? How dare they pursue other gods after all that God had done for them? How dare they? They they deserve what's coming to them. But to look at this text and to condemn Gomer and Israel for their unfaithfulness, or even to applaud Hosea for what he does, is to miss the point entirely. When we read this text, we need to instead accurately identify ourselves in it. And what the Bible tells us, unfortunately, is that we belong in the camp, in the same camp with Gomer 
and Israel. James chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, begs us to see this connection. It, it, it pleads with us to see our standing as the adulteress in this situation. James writes, Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Now listen here to verse 4. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Whoever seeks to be a friend with the world makes himself an enemy of God, an adulterer, an adulteress. So what is sin? Sin is spiritual adultery. And we're not just talking about gross sins here. We're not just talking about repeated sins, but any sin, every sin, every time we sin, what are we doing? We are choosing to give ourselves and our affection to something that is not God. You are saying to that thing, to that person, to that idea, that idea, you are better to me in this moment than God is. And so I choose you rather than the one that loves my soul. I choose you rather than the one that has given himself for me. That's what you're doing every time you sin. You are choosing something other than God. Think about what we're doing when we covet. We're accusing God of not giving us what we truly deserve. And we are choosing to love that thing more than we love God and what God has provided for us. That's what James says. It, it comes from your desires, what you want. We're choosing to love those things more than we love God. When we compromise at our work, when we tell little white lies, when we flatter and we gossip, we are openly declaring that we desire the praise and admiration of men rather than the approval of God. When we neglect the assembling of ourselves together with the believers. When we stand in worship, stone-lipped, refusing to sing. When we withhold our offerings, we are openly declaring that God is not worthy of our praise. had a conversation with some of our students at D3 about this. Because as I said, there were, there were hundreds uh, uh, around the room singing praises to God. And yet, unfortunately, there are... Students who stand there, arms crossed, daring not to sing. It is treason to refuse to offer God praise. And that goes for students, that goes for adults as well. When we refuse to sing in His assembly, we are disobeying His commands. He, he commands us to sing. And it is for our good that we do so. When we refuse to do so, even if we sound like a croaking frog, we are robbing Him of glory. We are adulterating ourselves. We are saying God is not worthy of our praise. We may see these as little things, as raisin cakes, but they're not. We might as well be putting on fishnet stockings and advertising ourselves downtown for what James says we're doing. We are making ourselves adulterers and adulteresses. When we sin against God in any way. 
spiritual adultery, seeking love and satisfaction apart from God. It's condemnable and contemptible, and we need to be aware of it when we do it. Yet what does God do here? He commands his prophet to go and love this adulterous woman, despite her betrayal, because he is going to go and he is going to love his people despite their betrayal. We must see this truth and we must never get bored of it. We must never cease to be amazed that God loves us. You see, I think often we get complacent and we think when we go to repent of our sins, well, of course God is going to forgive me of this. Of course he will. Why shouldn't? Christ has died on the cross. My forgiveness has been purchased. But that should never be our posture. Yes, God does promise to forgive us, but our posture when we go to the Lord to repent of our sin ought to be, how can you keep forgiving such a wretch as I? Never grow bored of the fact that God has loved you despite your treason. It is a remarkable thing. And it is the fuel that will keep us singing throughout eternity when we see it fully, how God has loved us. Do not cease to be amazed that God sincerely loves adulterers and adulteresses. However, we see in this text that the love of Hosea and even the love of God, for that matter, is not enough for Gomer or for his people. While their love is startling, it's actually not sufficient. Because Gomer, as well as God's people, have incurred something else. They, they, they don't just need to be loved, they need to be ransomed. They have a debt that now has to be paid. Verse 2 tells us about the settling of that debt. Evidently, because of her promiscuous behavior, Gomer has ended up enslaved to another man or or working here as a temple prostitute. Either way, she, because of her promiscuity, is enslaved. And so, in order to restore her to marriage, Hosea has to first pay her debt. He has to essentially go and buy back his wife. And he tells us that he did so for 15 shekels of silver and a large quantity of grain. Now, we know from the law that a slave was basically valued at 30 pieces of silver. If you injured someone's slave where they couldn't work or if you killed someone's slave, that was the the price you had to pay to that person in recompense for their slave. You had to pay them 30 pieces of silver, the lordly price for which Jesus himself was sold. But Hosea says that he buys Gomer back for half of that, 15 pieces of silver and then a large quantity of grain. The fact that he pays this half in silver and the rest in grain likely indicates his poverty. And the fact that purchasing back his wife was incredibly costly to him. He didn't have the full 30 pieces of silver and so he he paid what he could in silver and the rest he paid in grain. Yet he was faithful to go at any cost, whatever it took to go and love his wife, even if it meant nearly bankrupting his family. The debt that is incurred by sin is high. It's one that Gomer could not pay herself. And so too the Lord says, Israel, because of its sin, Israel will be enslaved. Israel will have a debt to pay. And we'll talk more about this in a minute and about the cost of redemption for God's people. 
The redemption, though, is a tangible sign to Gomer of how much Hosea loves her. He's willing to pay a debt that he did not incur in order to have her back. She had slighted him. She'd betrayed him. She disregarded his love. And in so doing, had ran up an enormous bill that she could not pay. And he comes and he says, despite all your disregard for me, I'll pay this debt. I'll welcome you back into my home, back as my wife. But that does not mean that there are not consequences for her behavior. Therefore, we see in verses 3 and 4 our third point. That Gomer, along with Israel, must suffer in exile for their sins. They must suffer in exile for their sins. Hosea tells Gomer that for many days they will live in sort of a marital exile. She will be his wife, but they will not come together as husband and wife in the one flesh union. This will be a time of purification, a time of rebuilding trust and, and, and contemplating, repenting over past sins. But the implication here is that at the end of that time, they will come together in a sexual reunion as husband and wife, resuming the full scope of their marital relationship. Now, as we read through this, we we might be surprised here again whenever we read this. We, We might want to scratch our heads and say, wait a second. After all that she's done, you're going to have her back in that way? After all the ways that she's betrayed you, we might think that the just thing to do would be to never come together sexually again. Gomer has given herself to other men. So maybe now she should come back as his wife, but live some sort of penitent celibate life. Staying with Hosea, caring for the children, but not fully restored to the the position of wife. But you see, that, that thinking misses the point of Hosea. One commentator says of this idea, he says, The goal of Hosea is the resumption of the covenant relationship between Yahweh and Israel. If Gomer only lives in the home of Hosea as something as a guest or a prisoner and never enjoys the full status of wife, which includes sexual relations, then the covenant between Hosea and Gomer is never truly mended. You see, God is telling his people that he will one day fully mend the covenant breach that they have caused. That's the point of this book. God is saying that one day I will fix everything you've broken. And so his parable here, this example of Hosea and Gomer, that too must be fully mended, fully restored. Albeit after a period of exile from one another. Let me take just a moment here to to make an observation about this and a point of application because I, I think this is important. This text here is assuming that it is the normal practice of a husband and wife to have a regular and consistent sexual relationship. The reason for the interruption of that relationship between Hosea and Gomer was a gross betrayal, a gross sin. But even then, it is presumed that the resultant exile from that sin must not last forever. It must not be the case that they never come together again In this way, they are to come back together, not begrudgingly, but in love as husband and wife. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5, he says, Let the husband render to his wife the affection due her, and likewise also the wife for her husband. 
The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except with consent for a time, that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer, and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Husbands, wives, this is a command of God. Some of you may have been depriving one another for a long time and probably not for the purpose of prayer and fasting. Rediscover the wonder of this covenant union that God has given us as a gift. Come together and do not deprive one another. I've been reading recently a a book, uh, a book of fiction by Wendell Berry. And in it, he, he describes within a marriage what he calls the room of love. And this is a place where a husband and wife exist alone together. And he writes of this. He says, the room of love is another world. You go there wearing no watch, watching no clock. It is the world without end, so small that two people can hold it in their arms. And yet it is bigger than worlds on worlds, for it contains the longing of all things to be together and to be at rest together. You come together at the day's end, weary and sore, troubled and afraid. You take it all into your arms. It goes away. And there you are where giving and taking are the same. And you live a little while, entirely in a gift. The words have all been said, all permissions given, and you are free in the place that is the two of you together. What could be more heavenly than to have desire and satisfaction in the same room? It's a beautiful picture of what God intended the sexual union in marriage to be. Something physical and spiritual. Something tangible and mysterious. For Hosea and Gomer, their marriage will not be fully put right until these activities resume. Some of us here may have marriages that need to be put right by the resumption of these activities. Some of you may need to go home this very night and reconnect in the room of love and resume these activities, not depriving one another. But as we understand that and as we think about that, we we need to come back and remember that this story is about more than just one woman and one man, though it is certainly not about less than that. After Hosea discusses suffering in exile with his wife, and notice that too is important, Hosea himself says, I too will be to you. I too will suffer this exile with you. This is for me also to endure. We're told that this means something for the people of Israel as well. They too will go many days when the relationship between them and the Lord will not be as it should be. And we're told that all the symbols of their religious practice, their kings, their sacrifices, their religious garb, it's all going to be stripped away from them in exile. But afterward, afterward, there's going to be a restoration. And that brings us to our final point, seeking the king. We're told that after these many days, after this time of exile, the people will seek the Lord their God and David their king. 
Now this too, every verse is full of surprises in this text. Every, every verse takes us in a new direction that we're not expecting. And, and we see this reference to David. They're going to seek David. But how can that be? David has been dead for centuries at this point. This king then that they will seek can only be the seed of David. The messianic king who is restoring all things to himself. You see, we spoke earlier of settling the debt. But while the price for Gomer was listed, there was no price listed for the people. Right alongside all these things, the Lord has said, you, you, you have to go and love Gomer because I'm going to love the people of Israel in this way. You have to go and, and, and redeem her, and then she's going to experience exile just as the people of Israel are going to experience exile. But you see, when it comes to the redemption, there's no correlation. The Lord doesn't provide a correlation there in the text to say, just as you paid X for Gomer, I'm going to pay X for the people. But here we understand how that's going to take place. It's going to be as they seek the king. The king himself will be the one that settles the debt. And what is that debt? Well, what price can be listed? Can 15 shekels of silver and... A large quantity of barley, can that pay the debt of an entire people? Can that pay for the sins of a nation? The people that have committed cosmic treason against their creator and their father? How do we even begin to tally such a debt? How many pieces of silver would it take? Well, there isn't enough silver. There's not enough gold. There's not enough grain that the world can grow to satisfy this debt. It's impossible. Because while Gomer had sinned against her human husband, Israel, and likewise us, we have sinned against the sovereign king of the universe. Our offenses, our adulteries against an infinite God have incurred an infinite debt. A debt that we can never settle because we don't have anything that's infinite to give in exchange for that debt. We have nothing that we can pay, nothing that would be of interest to God, nothing that would even start to chip away at that debt. Therefore, God himself, like Hosea, resolves to pay the debt for his people. Only he doesn't pay it with silver and gold, barley and wheat. He pays it the only way he can, with the infinite worth and value of his beloved son. Jesus Christ, the messianic king, takes upon himself the exile that the people deserved, being forsaken by God having the relationship severed. And in his infinite capacity, he drinks down the infinite cup of God's wrath stored up for our infinite treasons. In this, we see the sincere love of God fully displayed for his people. Slaves of their own making. People desperate for redemption, people with no way out of the mess that they've gotten themselves into, people who have no hope apart from slavery and exile and execution. And when he settles our debt, notice what God does. God doesn't keep us at arm's length any longer because the debt's been paid. Christ has already endured the exile on our behalf. We are welcomed back with full inclusion into the benefits and blessings of God's household. Ephesians 5, when it talks about the mysterious parable between marriage and 
Christ and the church, this is what it talks about. It says that we are welcomed back, that we are washed clean, sanctified, glorious, without spot or wrinkle. That is what Christ our King has done for us. And so then what ought we to do? We ought to seek Him. We ought to pursue Him with all of our might, as one might pursue a lover, seeing all beauty displayed in Christ alone, seeing Him alone as worthy of our love and affection, knowing that He has given everything He has to give for us. Heaven can pay no more. We ought to respond to Him accordingly. What Hosea then does for Gomer is what God has done for us. And so then we ought not to continue in adultery. Because if you remain defiant against Him, that is exactly what you are doing. Recognize your sins for what they are. Repent and enter into the joy of covenant relationship, fully restored relationship with the one who loves your soul and has given everything there is to give to redeem it. Let's pray. Lord, tonight we are grateful for your word. We are encouraged so much by the story of how you love your people with an exceedingly great and sincere love, one that puts no limit on the price it will pay to redeem us out of sin and slavery. Lord, I pray that you would help us to be faithful as Hosea calls Gomer to be faithful, to live not seeking after other lovers, to not go after other pursuits, but to live faithfully with him. Lord, you have given us a new heart. Help us then to live faithfully. Pursuing you alone, forsaking all other loves, striving to honor only you. Lord, help us to see you as beautiful and as worthy of that pursuit. Let our hearts not be divided, our minds not be fickle, but may we seek you, our good and righteous King. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.